Looking to take advantage of what Warren Buffett calls the American tailwind of prosperity? The Gabelli Financial Services Opportunity ETF is actively managed by McCray Sykes to invest in companies leveraged to long-term secular trends. This thematic approach provides the tax efficiency and real-time trading benefits of ETFs. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFs forward slash GABF to learn more. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. And as we wind down 2023, I want to continue spending some time looking back on different corners of the ETF universe this year and also looking ahead to 2024. And so this week with Stacy, that's exactly what we'll do in the energy sector, which I would say has had a lackluster year overall after an excellent 2022, though, as we'll get into, that's more broadly speaking, because there are certain segments of the energy complex that have performed uh, admirably. So we'll get into that. We'll discuss how the recent geopolitical issues in the Middle East are factoring into the uh, equation here. And then I'm hoping to uh, also have Stacy lay out a basic framework for allocating to energy ETFs. If this is something you're so inclined to do, I just want to hear how she thinks investors should approach this category. I'll then be joined by Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, who a couple of weeks ago... They launched their first ETF. It's the Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF. The ticker symbol is BEEZ, B-E-E-Z, which you've got to love that ticker given their uh, Honey Tree Investment Management. But this ETF holds large cap U.S. stocks that they believe will generate responsible growth. And when you hear responsible growth, I think you could certainly classify this as a uh, quote-unquote ESG ETF. But as you're going to find out, Liz's views on ESG are, uh, let's just say, a little bit different than what you might have heard from some of the larger fund companies, right? Some of whom uh, just slapped an ESG label on what otherwise looks like an S&P 500 index fund, and they try to sell that as ESG. So I'll have Liz explain the differences here, and we'll also talk about the future of ESG ETFs, which some would say have had a rough go of it over the past year or two, but Liz is still optimistic assuming ESG is done right. And then to close this week, 
I'll be joined by John Hooson, Managing Director, U.S. ETF Product at Brown Brothers Harriman. Our topic will be ETFs moving from T plus 2 to T plus 1 settlement next year. And this is something I broached on the uh, podcast a couple of months ago, but I'm hoping to do a much deeper dive with John and find out what he believes are the potential pros and potential cons of this transition. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Stacey Morris. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends. Stacey, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Great to reconnect. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here, Nate. Okay, so to uh, set the table for our conversation, I guess actually the uh, Thanksgiving table this week, right? Uh, let me give you the returns from a handful of ETFs, and then uh, you can offer your overall reaction or take, and we can go from there. So the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, ticker XLE, that's currently about flat on the year. The Alarian MLP ETF, ticker AMLP, that's now up 22% year-to-date. The Vanek Oil Services ETF, OIH, that's up about 4%. And then the Spider S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, XOP, is also uh, it's about 5%, a little bit more than uh, OIH. And just for comparison purposes, the S&P 500, so SPY, that's up 20%. And so I thought first... Just give us the big picture here in terms of key performance drivers across the uh, broad energy sector and, and maybe some of the subsectors I mentioned. And then as part of that, I would love to have you talk more specifically about this disparity between the four ETFs I just noted. Like, why is AMLP up 22 percent, but XLE is flat? Yeah, I know it's a great question, Nate. Um, and I think, you know, you coined it correctly when you said it's been kind of a lackluster year for energy. Um, you know, broadly, we've seen weaker commodity prices this year relative to 2022. And, you know, 2022 is just incredibly strong. Um, and this year has been weaker by kind of almost all accounts. Um, that said, you know, one of the big themes in energy this year has been M&A. So you have producers benefiting from M&A activity, whether that's a company like Pioneer being bought by Exxon or Hess being bought by Chevron, or it's other oil and gas producers that are trading up in sympathy with that because people think they're the next target or there's deals that are rumored. Um, so that general dynamic, I think, is going to be more helpful for XOP than XLE, for example. Um, and we've seen you know, benefits. Um, from M&A in the MLP space as well. You had a large MLP, Magellan Midstream Partners, bought out at a 22% premium this year. Um, you saw other MLPs trade up in sympathy with that. And then you've also got MLPs offering a yield around 7.7% right now. So that's also helping from a total return perspective. Um, and then finally, we've also seen strong dividend announcements in the MLP space, which, you know, help as a tailwind as well. But if you dig into XLE, you know, it's about 40% Exxon and Chevron. Both of those big names are down year to date. 
Um, Chevron has been particularly weak. It's down almost 20% on a price return basis. Um, interestingly, you know, they reported earnings last month, and they were down about 6.7% in one day just on an earnings miss and some cost overruns and project delays uh, in Kazakhstan. So that's a pretty big down move um, in one day for an integrated major. But I think kind of the punchline here is that things that worked really well last year that are kind of your default energy investment options, you know, the XLE, Chevron, Exxon, um, those just are not doing that well this year. Um, and so I think for investors, the point here is that can pay to kind of take a look beyond those default options and look at other spaces that have you know, held up better this year. Really interesting analysis. So going back to, for instance, the MLP space, it sounds like you think that M&A activity and then obviously the yield that you mentioned, maybe investors looking to that higher yield has been the key driver there uh, in, in comparison to XLE, where you noted the, the underperformance, shall we say, of Exxon and Chevron. I mean, does it really boil down to that? I mean, I think those are key parts of it. Um, so it's really, you know, the weakness in Exxon and Chevron on one side um, I think that's kind of helping differentiate um, what you're seeing in XOP and OIH versus XLE. Mm-hmm. And then on the MLP side, it is that juicy yield that you've seen. Um, it's you know that M&A activity that we talked about as well. And generally, you know, midstream is more defensive. These companies are generating stable cash flows. They're actually seeing higher EBITDA in 23 versus 22, which is unique among the energy space. Um, so there's other elements there as well, but I think you know, those, those are some of the key variables. Since we last talked, obviously there have been some rather uh, significant and, and unfortunately very tragic geopolitical issues that have arisen in the uh, Middle East. What type of impact are those having on the energy space? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's just you know, absolutely devastating to see some of the headlines and news coming out of the area. But from an energy perspective, Um, If we start on the oil side, you know, oil initially jumped, but those gains have been, you know, more than washed out at this point. Israel doesn't produce oil, but there was initially concern that the conflict could have an impact on oil producers in the area or potentially interrupt oil flows from that region. Um, And Iran was particularly topical. Uh, Iranian oil production and exports have ramped quite a bit this year. If you look at Bloomberg data for Iran exports, they were exporting about 600,000 barrels per day of crude in December of 2022, and that had gotten up to over one and a half million barrels per day in August and September. So almost a million barrel per day swing just in their exports. Um, Now, last week, President Biden's energy security advisor said sanctions would be enforced and Iranian exports would be coming down. And in October, they were back under 1 million barrels per day. So that's something that kind of continues to bear watching. But generally, from an oil price perspective, you saw a jump, and then uh, it was pretty short-lived. On the natural gas side, Israel does produce some natural gas. Its Tamar field was shut initially after the attacks, um, and then Tamar resumed production earlier this month. But um, if you look at you know, Israeli natural gas production, it's used for meeting domestic demand, but it's also exports to Egypt. And Egypt has LNG export facilities that ultimately feed the European market. So European LNG prices went from about $11 per million British thermal unit before the attack to over $15 shortly thereafter. Now, at the same time, there was also um, a pipeline issue in, in Europe that kind of impacted that as well. But 
if you look at European LNG prices, they've come back down a little bit, but they're still pretty elevated above you know, $14 as of yesterday. So we've seen actually kind of maybe more sticky price increases on the LNG side than on the oil side. When you mentioned uh, LNG prices and, and exports, it's interesting as I was looking at the uh, list of, of energy ETFs, and, and certainly not to talk your own book, but I know Vetify is behind the Roundhill Alarian LNG ETF that launched in September, ticker LNGG. Uh, how do these geopolitical issues or even some of the other drivers you were mentioning earlier tie into this ETF? And maybe you could also explain exactly what this ETF holds. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, broadly, a, a stronger price environment is probably positive for the, the index. We can talk a little bit more about that. But just to explain what the index is, it's a global index of companies that are engaged in the LNG industry. So companies that liquefy natural gas, that ship LNG, that regasify LNG at the end destination so it can be used. Um, it really includes players across the LNG value chain. Uh, the biggest holdings are names that people may have heard of or, or may not have heard of. Um, the largest holding is Chenier, which is a pure play liquefaction name in the U.S., um, but it's followed by two Australian LNG producers, Santos and Woodside. Um, the index also includes your you know, global majors that are involved in the LNG space, like Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, but their weights are about 2%. So, mm. That really differentiates this index from a lot of other energy indexes that you'll look at that tend to be dominated by those larger market cap names. Um, so from a performance perspective, you know, I think broadly we see structural global demand growth for LNG. Um, if you look at estimates, they're pointing to demand growth of 60% or more to 2040. And these companies are really helping to meet that demand. So some of the drivers behind that demand is Things like coal to gas switching as countries try to reduce their emissions, um, just a general need for supply security and reliability as we've seen um, issues with supply over the last you know year or two. Um, there's economic growth as a driver, particularly in Asia. And then you also see people using natural gas essentially as a backup to solar and wind and helping kind of offset some of that intermittent power. Um, so I mentioned LNG prices also kind of being a driver here. The index is up over 20% in 2021 and 2022 when you saw LNG prices that were, you know, particularly strong. Um, year to date, it's been a little more flat, but I think, you know, broadly, there's a lot of um, kind of positive drivers for the global LNG market that this index tries to capitalize on. Stacy, I alluded to this at the uh, top, and I can't remember if I've asked you this on the uh, the podcast before, but... Going back to the four ETFs I gave the performance on earlier and then just hearing you walk through the composition of, of LNGG and, and some of the drivers there. And then I also toss in, I think, about the, the types of listeners of ETF Prime. For investors who want exposure to the energy complex using ETFs, I would love to hear how you think they should approach this. Like we just talked about a 20%-plus performance spread between AMLP and XLE. And, and I get that there's this type of disparity in any broad sector, right? If you, if you look at tech ETFs or whatever, there's going to be uh, different ETFs with different return patterns. I think we all get that. But I, I would love to have you offer some sort of framework for how investors might think about allocating towards energy. What, what, like, what do you view as some of the biggest considerations here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it really depends what the investor is trying to achieve. If you simply want exposure to this space 
or you're just trying to match a benchmark, then you probably just want to use one of those default options like Exxon, Chevron, XLE, or VDE. Um, admittedly, it's not necessarily adding value, but it's kind of checking a box, and sometimes that's what people want. They don't want to make a call in this space because it's cyclical or they're not comfortable with it. So I can understand people that are coming at it from that angle, and they're just trying to get exposure in an efficient or cheap manner. Um, but, you know, energy can do a lot more for a portfolio than just provide you sector exposure. And so if you want income, for example, you know, the underlying index for MLP is yielding 7.7%, as I mentioned. Um, often distributions from MLPs or MLP to ETFs have tax advantages to them. You know, that might be something that someone wants to look at. Or if you want your broader global energy and natural resource exposure with a nice yield, then you might look at something like Amplify's Natural Resources Dividend Income ETF, um, NDIV. So this is certainly a sector where you can get attractive income. I mean, XLE has a yield you know, probably north of 3%, which isn't terrible, but you can get more enhanced yield if, if you would like that from this space. Um, if someone is, you know, bullish on a particular commodity, you know, for example, if you're bullish on oil, then you might want to consider allocating more to XOP, which focuses on oil and gas producers, um, or another ETF that focuses on oil and gas producers. If you're bullish natural gas or LNG trends, then there are ETFs that focus on natural gas or LNG like we talked about. Um, but broadly, you know, if you're a generalist, you may not have a lot of conviction in a commodity call. You may not have a lot of comfort there. But I think what people could consider doing is using one of those default options like Exxon, Chevron, XLE, VDE, and then complementing it with something else, like maybe MLPs or midstream if you want kind of more defensive energy exposure and a nice yield. Um, so I think it really depends ultimately on the investor and what they want. But I think the point I would make is just you can have an energy allocation and it can do a lot more for your portfolio than just give you a sector exposure if you're kind of willing to look beyond those default options. A few minutes left here. You mentioned investors maybe not wanting to make a call on the uh, energy space, maybe not having that conviction. I'm going to put you on the spot to, to have you make a call because I believe the next <laughs> time we chat won't be until uh, January at the earliest, if you can believe that. And so would you like to offer a quick outlook for next year? What are you watching for across the energy space as we head to 2024? Well, yeah, I think if we kind of look from a commodity price perspective, you know, U.S. natural gas prices probably get directionally better. You know, we'll see what kind of winter we have. Um, last winter was extremely warm and that kind of decimated prices. Um, but generally, I think people are a little more optimistic overall in the price picture for natural gas in 2024 um, and then get particularly more constructive in 2025. So there's a couple of LNG export facilities that are expected to come online later in 2024 and into 2025. So that incremental demand um, you should be supportive from a price perspective. But my guess is that things will be pretty ho-hum unless we get some extreme winter weather, which we could see some volatility around. But generally, I don't think there's going to be too much movement um, from a natural gas price perspective. On the oil side, I think it's a tougher picture. Um, you know, I'll be keeping an eye on demand, what's going on with the economy and how that makes people feel about global oil demand. Um, certainly on the supply side, we'll be watching OPEC Plus and looking to see what happens with incremental cuts that have been made by Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, OPEC Plus meets on November 6th, so you know, right around the corner. 
Um, I feel pretty good about OPEC plus defending a price level. So I think that helps manage the downside risk in oil if we do see a recession or concerns around the economy. Um, but I'm probably less confident around upside drivers for oil at this point um, than maybe I have been. So for me, I think that kind of murky oil picture and probably not too exciting natural gas picture um, would favor remaining fairly defensive in this space. And I think that kind of goes back to midstream and MLPs um, and those companies that generate more stable cash flows and are paying a nice dividend and you know, providing that more defensive exposure. Um, but we'll see. That's that's what my crystal ball at least looks like at the moment. Well, Stacey, uh, excellent perspective as always. I always say nobody knows the energy sector better than you do. I really hope you and your family enjoy the uh, Thanksgiving holiday weekend, and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. Have a great Thanksgiving. That was Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. Tuttle Capital and Rex Shares have joined forces to introduce a groundbreaking brand, T-Rex, these leveraged and inverse single-stock ETFs are making waves in the market. Currently, they stand as the exclusive single-stock trading products, offering both two-times and negative two-times leverage. But what sets them apart is their affiliation with the ever-popular Tesla and NVIDIA stocks. TSLT and TSLZ provide you with two-times and negative two-times exposure to Tesla, while NVDX and NVDQ offer the same for NVIDIA. Take control of your investments with confidence and precision by exploring T-Rex's two-times leverage and negative two-times inverse leverage single-stock ETFs. Dive deeper into TSLT, TSLZ, and NVDX, NVDQ at RexShares.com. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, which can be found on RexShares.com. Please read the prospectuses carefully before you invest. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. The fund is not suitable for all investors. The fund is designed to be utilized only by sophisticated investors, such as traders and active investors, employing dynamic strategies. Investors in the fund should understand the risks associated with the use of leveraged or leveraged inverse strategies and intend to actively monitor and manage their investments. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I am now joined by Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, who just a couple of weeks ago, they launched their first ETF. It's the Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF. This has a great ticker symbol, BEEZ, B-E-E-Z. And I'm just telling you, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone more passionate and knowledgeable around the topic of ESG investing than Liz, who is now on the line with me from Toronto Liz, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to uh, chat again. Well, first, uh, congratulations on the ETF. I always love seeing new ETF issuers come to market, and I know you've had this uh, in the works for a while now. And I actually thought before we get into the ETF itself and obviously a, a discussion around ESG, would you mind talking a little bit just about the process of bringing a new ETF to market? Just just this journey from sort of the idea to the actual inception of the ETF. I thought that might be an interesting place for us to start. Sure. Um, when we, we founded our firm in 2018, our, our goal was to always get our, our equity strategies into a vehicle. And, you know, if we were launching 10 or 20 years ago, that vehicle would have been a mutual fund. 
Um, but because of the way ETFs, especially active ETFs, have evolved and we'll call it um, adopted, uh, been adopted, um, uh, we, we had decided uh, many years ago that it was definitely going to be an ETF when we launched a vehicle, assuming it was our choice and not, you know, a sub-advisory relationship. So we've been working towards this for a while. We actually thought we'd have a Canadian vehicle uh, before a U.S. one. I, uh, both my co-founder and I have launched uh, Canadian ETFs, interestingly, in, in our previous lives. Um, but so, so we were always working towards this and, you know, learning about the, the U.S. market opportunities and the white label options um, and the growth of active ETFs and even ETF models um, that advisors use kind of kind of drove us towards getting this first ETF uh, off the ground. And obviously, our wonderful partners at ETF Architect. Um, played the majority of the role in getting this ETF launched. But, you know, our, our job is to, to, to design the investment strategy, figure out product market fit and, and who's going to buy an active ETF. Um, and so it's, it's been a, a bit of multi-year journey, but it's really about taking the, the existing strategies that we run that are not accessible to most advisors in retail investors and getting them in uh, a structure this ETF that they can then actually access and use. Just out of curiosity, for aspiring ETF entrepreneurs, of, of whom we have a number who listen to this podcast, um, any quick tips you might offer, things to do or, or not do? It sounds like, uh, obviously, you, you liked your experience with uh, the, the team over at Alpha Architect or ETF Architect on their white label side. A- a- any tips? Yeah, I mean... Uh your market um, at my old firm for example we 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 did end up launching structures and closing them not the ETFs I was talking about and so sometimes sometimes you you launch a product too early um, and and so just understanding who's gonna buy it how they're gonna buy it what platforms they're gonna buy it on simple distribution uh, aspects are just as important as the investment design and I think sometimes the investment design, or the, the idea behind the investment design uh, uh, takes over instead of understanding who's buying what and how and how they're building their portfolios around it. So that would just be my suggestion before um, spending a bunch of money to, to launch a vehicle. Okay, so let's talk about the ETF itself. Again, the Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF, uh, which, as you noted, this is actively managed by you. I, I should have uh, mentioned that at the top. You're the portfolio manager, if that uh, wasn't obvious. But this ETF, uh, it's concentrated. You're focusing on responsible growth. Just take us from there. What's going on underneath the hood? So we run a quantumental process, which is a really fancy word. Um, that just means that we use both quantitative tools, fundamental in our active management. Um, and that means we're, we're stock pickers that use quantitative tools, essentially. Uh, and so what that looks like for, for our strategy is we start with the universe of U.S. stocks. And we use 25 qualification criteria, and those criteria are both financial and non-financial. And when I say non-financial, I mean ESG. Um, I don't use the term ESG too often because our the, the data that we use and the inputs we use um, don't fit nicely in the E, S, and G buckets. Um, they, you know, the, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of, t- you know, a lot of the data is tied to financials and stuff. So I, I would say financial and non-financial. 
So we have 25 qualification criteria. That's our quant process. And that takes us from the universe of U.S. stocks down to about 50 stocks in which we consider our consideration set. And I'll give you an example of qualifications. Those are, you know, $5 billion minimum market cap. If they have a dividend, it has to be growing. We use board diversity beyond gender. So since the beginning, we've been looking at racial diversity on equal footing as gender diversity. Um, and we have a lot of traditional ESG exclusions like weapons and fossil fuel and, and gambling and tobacco. And, and all those criteria get us down to what we consider a manageable universe or a manageable consideration set of 50 companies. And that's when we do our fundamental deep dive. And where we're unique, uh, uh, you know, and, and there, there's, there are lots of other firms that integrate ESG in their process, but we, we take in our fundamental deep dive, we do what investors, active investors would consider a traditional financial fundamental deep dive. But we bring in non-financial data equally throughout that process. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at growth alongside gender in leadership growth year over year and racial diversity in leadership year over year. And the reason we're, we're, we can combine them and treat them equally is because they, the, to us they're telling us the same thing. And that's, is this company responsibly growing? Is this company fundamentally, whether it's non-financial or financial, financially based, is this company going to continue to grow responsibly and sustainably over the long term? And we believe you could, you could kind of get there with just financials, but we believe these non-financial data points add a lot of color. And, and just to be super clear, they're quantitative and qualitative data points um, uh, on the, the non-financial side and the financial side. But, but we're, we're specifically trying to use this fundamental deep dive to, to figure out which of these, the, the 25 of the 50-ish companies that are responsibly growing um, that we believe based on the deep dive, they're going to continue that uh, sustainable, responsible, boring, to be super clear, growth rate. We're not looking for, you know, companies shooting, uh, shooting the moon or whatever. It, it's, it's, these are, these are companies that, understand that they're stakeholders, so their employees, their customers, the local community, the environment, and even their shareholders, um, they understand that the impact they make on those stakeholders is what drives their bottom line. And so they have to consider all their stakeholders in their long-term growth planning and processes and in their operations. Um, and, and we see, you know, uh, a company, uh, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you some examples, you know, there's a lot of tech companies that say that they care about diversity, but they aren't able to move the and, and asset management and investing too, but they aren't able to move the needle on, let's say, women in leadership year over year. But then you have industrial companies or, or retailers who, who have who have figured out operationally that if they increase women in leadership roles, they're building their their talent pool. They're building their capacity to hire higher quality leaders because that talent pool is bigger. And so they're growing gender and leadership year over year, not because it looks good on an ESG score, but because it actually enhances their business and enhances their bottom line. Um, and so we're looking at a bunch of different metrics, um, you know, and just to, to give you an idea on the ESG side, since I know your listeners are not, as, as, as we'll call it, as ES, this is not an ESG podcast. 
you know, we look at emissions data year over year and water use year over year. Um, we look at parental leave. You know, if you have a company and you're offering parental leave and none of the men are taking it, you're potentially having a higher turnover of women who are taking parental leave. And so if you can increase all of your parents taking leave to hang out with their kids, you may, in fact, be saving money and increasing retention long term of all the professionals you've gone out to hire. And so, you know, just like you would look at debt capacity and managing, uh, you know, business responsibly, we think of these things as managing a business responsibly. And that's why we're able to integrate them equally in our fundamental deep dive. Liz, with that non-financial data, or I'll call it ESG data that you're using, where, where do you source this or how do you source this? Because I, I know this is always sort of a controversial topic around ESG, just that you have these uh, rating agencies out there that will be all over the board on how they rate ESG factors of, of really the exact same companies. And, and so how do you approach the underlying data here? So I was raised in a in a U.S. equity shop that publicly available data and didn't meet managers and certainly didn't use external uh, research. And so we take a very similar approach. And we're pretty lucky. When, by the time we started, uh, a lot of the leading companies were reporting a pretty robust set of ESG data. And what I found very interesting starting this firm is we could not buy that data from ESG data suppliers because only 20 30% of the index was reporting it. Now it's, it's, it's much better and the more members of various indices are reporting the data. So you can buy it in better depth. But we mainly use primary source company reported data. And we believe most of the data that we're using is what's going to end up being required in financial statements in the next five to ten years. And to give you an example, um, you know, the SEC is coming out with uh, environmental disclosure requirements um, uh, related to emissions specifically. And so emissions reporting will become mandatory. Um, and with that will come uh, all the other environmental you know, inputs and outputs that get reported and standardized in this process. Um, and on the, 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 the workforce side, I like to call it, the, the S, as, as folks will call it, um, we look at mainly, you know, Department of Labor diversity data. Um, and, and with that and as that evolves, we're going to have pay equity data, turnover data. You know, we have employee safety data and things like that. And so while we're using mainly company reported, uh, you know, company fundamental data on the, the ESG side, uh, a lot of the companies in our portfolio are actually getting a chunk of that data externally um, assured and verified. And, and so we're in the transition period right now where the accountants are beginning to take over the auditing and the verification of ESG data. And so I always push back when folks think it's all over the place and not standardized. Because when you look at the companies that, that, that we're researching, they're all using the same format of reporting. And we can get pretty standardized and quantified data across you know, uh, a bunch of, uh, of the metrics. And to be super clear, we use a lot of qualitative research in our process. Um, but that being said, you know, you, you, how do you compare qualitative data about companies? You have to standardize it in some way. So um, we do use some external, uh, uh, not ESG ratings, but there's certain, uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting, you know, Glassdoor, for example, uh, uh, other, other source 
data points that we use in our process, but it is mainly, just like financials, it is mainly company-reported primary source data. Well, let me ask you this. So if that data is becoming more standardized, and and, and going back to your ETF, which, by the way, let me caveat this by saying I'm not looking for a debate here. I, I just would love to have you... Uh, articulate your views around a topic that I know we discussed last time uh, you were on, which is the value of running an active ESG strategy. And you may recall, and I'm sure you still disagree with me on this, uh, my view is that I believe active managers who set market prices, uh, that they're paying attention to all of the uh, risks and opportunities involved with a company, including, quote-unquote, ESG factors or or this non-financial data. I would say... That's their job. I, I just don't see why any good active manager would ignore meaningful risks or opportunities. And, and so I, I guess my question is, like, from a performance perspective, how do you generate alpha in this space? So I'm, it's funny. I've only ever lived in active management, and I'm, I'm kind of active management's biggest critic. Um, and not because active management is bad unto itself, but what happens a lot is human bias gets in the way. Um, and what that, I, I believe that is, is evidence, the evidence of that is index hugging, um, which is not an ESG issue. It's an active issue that, that spreads over to ESG. So I, I would agree with you partially. I think fundamental stock picker over history um, would be looking at what is considered an ESG risk, even if it was not formally within an ESG bucket. That being said, I think the, the evidence is there that uh, a larger, non, a non-minority chunk of active managers preferred to keep focus on financial, traditional fundamentals and so that's how why ESG and ESG data, ESG research and ESG ratings ended up being separate. Not part of traditional financial packages, not part of traditional financial research, not researched by the same team often. And so while, while we definitely could find evidence of portfolio managers looking at things like high turnover, um, you know, toxic culture, uh, you know, EPA, Fine. And, and, and I'm sure there, there's many of those things. There's, there's a belief, there's traditional belief in, in finance theory and in our models that, that, that shareholders return is the goal of a company. And so, you know, what, what, what I like to say is, is stakeholder return and stakeholder governance is the goal of a company and the companies that we hold. And so there's a bunch of paradigms going on here that, that limit traditional portfolio managers ability to use some of this ESG data in their model. So 100% a bunch are and always have, um, just like a, a whole bunch of companies who don't believe in ESG or don't have sustainable sustainability reports execute on ESG, like reducing employer, improving employee safety or saving money on waste disposal. Just because it's not labeled as ESG doesn't mean it's not. And that's, you know, why I, 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 I complain online lots is the idea that there's ESG stuff on one side and financial stuff on the other is just not true. Everything's much more mixed up than it is. And in order to make uh, fully understood investment decisions, 
one needs to to uh, adjust and optimize models to consider uh, broader impacts and their future negative consequences or positive consequences in portfolio management. So I, I kind of half agree with you, but I, what the evidence I see in the industry is that the uh, the maybe the louder chunk of active active models in the world um, uh, ha- have managed to avoid considering ESG stuff at the at the the level that they hopefully will um, down the line. Liz, just about a minute left here, uh, and I'm going to give you a very challenging question to, to put a bow around in, in just a minute. But I think it's been about two and a half years since you and I last chatted on this podcast, and. From my perspective, a lot has changed with ESG. It felt like a few years ago, the largest asset managers were all trying to uh, shove ESG, or at least their definition of ESG, down investors' throats. And then last year, there seemed to be a lot more political polarization around ESG. And so no surprise, we saw many of those same asset managers retreat from the space, right? They didn't want to be caught up in that. And so... Just as you look ahead to the future of, of ESG, what what is this going to look like? And, again, I know that's a loaded question, but if you could try to boil that down, what, what does the future look like here? Um, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I like what the SEC is doing um, with regards to a lot of these asset managers that you've mentioned. Um, asset manager does not need to use ESG data in their research. Um, but if they're going to claim to use ESG data in their research, they should be using it as they, they claim to do. And we've seen the SEC come out and find um, a number, a non-small number of these leading ESG managers for uh, making unsubstantiated claims about how much or what they use in terms of ESG. So I'm as, as the, the ESG data gets standardized in financials, as fund managers are required to um, not make broad claims about ESG that they can't substantiate. Um, and that's happening up here in Canada, too, as it should, right? You know, you, you shouldn't be able to claim that on financial data and research. Why should you be able to claim it on ESG? Um, I don't think the end customer of ESG has been impacted negatively uh, by the anti-ESG rhetoric. I think the end ESG customer has been impacted negatively by asset managers, faking ESG and overstating their ESG claims. And so the retreat in that, I think, is a good thing. Well, Liz, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoyed reconnecting. Congratulations on the launch. Certainly wish you all the success. So best of luck, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Liz Simi, co-founder of Honeytree Investment Management. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com.
My last guest this week, certainly not least, is John Hooson, Managing Director, USETF Product at Brown Brothers Harriman, who is one of the oldest and largest private global financial services firms. And in a nutshell, John works with clients to bring new ETF products to market, and he oversees the strategic development for the firm's ETF servicing platform. And he's now on the line with me from Boston. John, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. All right, so I thought let's jump right in here. In May of next year, ETFs are moving from T plus 2 to T plus 1 settlement. And best I can tell, I'm still digging into all of this, but best I can tell, the biggest concerns seem to be around U.S.-listed ETFs holding international securities. And we're certainly going to get into that. But I thought first, let's just start with some quick background for listeners. So do you want to explain what T plus 1 or T plus 2 settlement is to begin with for investors unfamiliar with that? And then I'm just curious, was there any particular catalyst as to why this change is being made? Or is this just sort of the natural uh, progression of things? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, very simply, right, if you sort of think about, you know, T T plus one or T plus two settlement um, is, you know, T T is um, trade date. And, you know, the plus one or the plus two is the day when, you know, cash and securities actually trade hands, right? So after you go make a trade with your broker, um, you know, there, there's operational functions that sort of happen behind the scenes, things get matched up, and then they actually settle, um, you know, on, on that next day or, or two days out. Um, so current standard right now in the, in the U.S. is a T plus two settlement. So that's been in place since around 2017, uh, which is when the market shifted from a T plus three sort of convention to a T plus two convention. Um, and then, like you said, in, in May of next year, so specifically, um, the, the Tuesday after Memorial Day, which is the 28th, um, the U.S. market's going to shift from a T plus two to a T plus one convention. Um, and really ETFs are, you know, sort of one asset class that's impacted there. Um, you know, will impact sort of U.S. equities more broadly, um, corporate bonds and, and all that sort of stemming from SEC rule amendments that um, have come out um, as of late. Yeah. And again, was there something in particular that drove this change? Like I know going back to the uh, the, the whole meme stock uh, phenomenon a couple of years ago and, and Robin Hood. I, I, I don't know if that was a driver or again, was this just sort of a natural progression that, that you know, moving from T plus two to T plus one is a good thing ultimately? Yeah, no, I think it definitely is a good thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, you sort of see, you know, like I said, mentioned not that long ago, went from T3 to T2. Now we're going to T2 to T1. So sort of continuing onwards towards that, that goal of getting closer to, you know, a real time or at least a near real time type environment. I mean, I, I think, you know, sort of the catalyst, if you look at some of the benefits, right? So, so things like reducing counterparty risk, right? You're, you're shaving an extra day off that settlement that you're exposed to your counterparty, um, you know, obviously gives investors, you know, faster access to their cash and securities if they're available on, on the next day as opposed to two days out. Um, you know, and I think the expectation is, is that, you know, because of this change, you know, you're hopefully going to see sort of enhanced liquidity across the market overall um, and really sort of a, a more de- efficient deployment um, of capital. And, and you know, we, we do see T1 today um, in today's ETF world. You know, often it relates to, you know, option strategies, potentially treasury ETFs where the underlying basket is already settling T plus one, um, and this change is really just going to expand that universe to include, you know, all U- all U.S. ETFs. You know, I mentioned obviously the you know broader change across the market, equities and, and corporates as well. Um, but but definitely a you know a positive step 
um, you know, and, and building on, um, you know, that 2017 change. As I mentioned, uh, the best I can tell, the biggest concerns at this point seem to be with ETFs holding international securities due to the uh, different settlement times in other countries. I- I'd love to have you just explain very high level what these potential issues are. And I know this can get pretty wonky when we start talking about uh, authorized participants and those sorts of things, but I'll let you do the heavy lifting here. What, what, what are some of the potential issues? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, so I'll, I'll try to keep it high level, but um, maybe just sort of a quick quick background, a quick primer, you know, and, and some may sort of know this already, um, but, you know, in, in the primary market, right, which is where authorized participants trade directly with, you know, the, the exchange-traded funds, um, you know, when that trading is occurring, the, the AP, the authorized participant, is exchanging a basket of securities um, and generally, you know, cash for ETF shares, right? So the balanced value transactions, the sum of the, the basket components plus that cash plug um, is going to equate to the value of the ETF shares, which are issued in standard sizes um, that we call creation units. So when the basket and the ETF shares trade in the same market, so, you know, for example, a, a U.S. large cap ETF um, with a U.S. ETF, you know, all that settlement occurs on the same day. Today's world, like we said, T2. Um, next year, T1, um, you know, happens. It, it's nice and neat. Um, but we see this today um, and, and, you know, we'll get into sort of what, what we think the impact is going to be um, in, in, as of May of next year. But for ETFs with, with global baskets, right, that, that's not always the case. So we do see mismatches today where, you know, U.S. Um, securities are exchanging hands on T plus two and potentially there's, there's alternate settlement cycles um, in other markets. Okay, so, so what – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so as you say, so, so I sort of break it down, right, and, and, and there's a, a creation process, right, so creating – more ETF shares, and there's obviously also a, a redemption process, um, you know, to to uh, to destroy shares, take them out of circulation. So, you know, generally what what we're expecting or what we think we're going to see um, when there are redemptions um, is that we're going to see a greater need for collateral. Hmm. Um, and and what, I, what I mean there is that um, oftentimes when there is a mismatch between I mentioned sort of the the funds obligation, which could be ETF shares, um, and, a, and a mismatch to the basket securities um, and settlement cycles. You obviously sort of you bridge that gap with collateral, right? So sometimes it could be different settlement cycles. Sometimes it could be trades that may be failing. But whatever it is, you know, the AP can post collateral that is equal to the value, um, you know, of the of the tree of the components that either haven't settled yet for whatever reason, um, timing failure uh, to deliver, whatever it is, they can post the collateral value um, of that trade or those trades. And that allows the fund to release the ETF shares, um, get them out in the market trading. Um, and and then the collateral is held until, you know, sort of performance on whatever that obligation is, right? So it could be a trade settling the next day, you know, a failure to deliver um, is, is cured, whatever it is. Um, so it's something we see today. And what we're sort of expecting is with the U.S. moving to T1 and many global markets remaining on a T plus two convention, you're just going to see more of that, right? So you're going to have U.S. ETFs that are settling on T plus one. You're going to have global constituents that are settling the next day. The way you sort of bridge that gap from a settlement perspective um, is you post collateral um, and that sort of secures the fund, allows them to release shares. Collateral gets returned once the obligation has been met. 
Okay, so what is the end result of all that? Is it potentially wider bid-ask spreads for U.S.-listed international ETFs? I mean, it certainly could be, right? I mean, I sort of mentioned earlier, um, you know, hopefully the expectation is with T1 is you're going to see, you know, reduced counterparty risk, greater liquidity, um, you know, more efficient deployment of capital. So you sort of have that on, on the one hand as, you know, the benefits and, and hopefully, you know, you'll, you'll see those come through. But certainly for, you know, ETFs with larger global um, portfolios or sort of proportionately global portfolios, um, you know, this is a, a new cost potentially that that's going to be introduced, right? Um, you know, interest rates uh, being where they are today, um, you know, for orders at size, um, you know, e- even sort of one day, um, you know, of posting collateral on some of those orders could, could be significant. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's definitely something that could occur. Um, you know, what sort of remains to be seen if it, if it will occur, um, you know, and how those sort of, you know, new costs that are, that are being uh, introduced here sort of make their way through the, um, through the system. Do you think at some point, uh, maybe even sooner rather than later, we'll see international markets move to that T plus one to match U.S. settlement times? It's a really good question. I mean, you definitely start to hear more about it, right? So, so certainly um, earlier in the year, you know, when, when the SEC was sort of finalizing the, um, the effective date, um, you know, I think you heard more there from international markets um, you, you know, it's sort of an increased topic of conversation. Are they going to are they going to make a similar move? You know, Canada is actually going to be going to be moving to T plus one, and roughly the same day as the U.S. actually doing it the the day before. Um, they don't have the the holiday, the Memorial Day holiday, um, as we do. Um, so certainly, you are you are seeing you know move move in that direction. You know, I think it could be something where you see, you know, that that talk um, or those plans potentially pick up if if some of those benefits that I, I sort of outlined earlier. Um, you know, those start to become realized in the in the U.S. market, um, you know, and, and are, um, you know, able to sort of point to that as evidence of, of why this is working and why it makes sense for other markets to make that, that change as well. Any other concerns at all with ETFs moving to T plus one settlement? Again, we obviously hit on the, uh, the, the U.S. listed international uh, ETFs. Anything else that might impact in investors in a negative way? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, one, one thing, you know, we, we're obviously out there, we're talking to our clients and other market participants, right? So just communication, I think at this point, the word is out there. Folks know that this is coming. Um, but certainly, you know, making sure, um, you know, from an industry perspective and, and me sort of speaking, maybe, you know, from the more the, the custodian or the ETF servicer, right? Where we're doing a lot of that sort of plumbing in the, in the background, right? Is making sure that, you know, systems are ready, workflows have been reviewed, all those things, you know, if, if there needs to be investments in technology. Um, as I mentioned, it, you know, it's broader than ETF. It, it's really the U.S. market as a, as a whole, right? It was mm-hmm. the, you know, the equity market and the corporate bond market. Um, so making sure that, you know, overall, um, you know, you're, you're, you're ready for this move. Um, you know, you, you've tested out your systems. Um, you know, you've, you've taken a look at all your workflows, you know, product-specific nuances, right? So, Obviously, we just mentioned, um, you know, global as, as being a key example of that. Um, but, but I think really that that's the exercise that, that folks are going through now is, is hopefully they're they're done with that analysis phase. And right now they're sort of planning, you know, what needs to be done to be ready for this implementation and ensure that it's a uh, it's a smooth process for everyone. Because, you know, there there is sort of a, you know, there's a big change there, right? You're going from, you know, a, a two days to settle a trade to, to one day. So you're cutting that in half. Um and certainly there's there's technology and there's advancements um, that are going to facilitate that and, and you know, allow that to, to occur. Um, but certainly you need to make sure that all those things are ready and in place uh, for the date. 
And then what about potential positives or benefits here? I know you mentioned earlier, uh, obviously, that access to cash for investors, right? They'll be able to, say, transfer funds out of an account more quickly if they need that cash. I might suggest that just placing ETFs on uh, equal footing with mutual funds in terms of that settlement time might help eliminate a little bit of confusion in the marketplace. I don't know how big of an issue that is, but I, I think just putting those two on a, sort of a level playing field will help. A- any other potential benefits you might point to? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I think the counterparty risk is 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 a is a big one there, right? Um, you know, some of that that risk is being factored in, um, you know, into sort of general risk profiles. Um, so, you know, if cash is going to be available, you know, the next day, um, you know, you're, you're reducing that risk to your counterparty. To your point, you, know, you can then put that cash to use. You know, obviously earning potentially higher interest income um, in the current rate environment. You know, you can use you know those holdings, you know, to post as margin, to post as collateral. Um, you know, so so hopefully, you know, seeing some some efficiencies there um, and sort of easier ability to redeploy uh, collateral. Um, so I think I think those are those are really the big ones that we see. About a minute left before I let you go. Do you think we'll ultimately get to T plus zero settlement in the U.S.? And I won't even ask you about tokenization, which I've talked about on the podcast before. Where we'll have. Right, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think actually what's what's unique about ETFs, right, is is T plus zero is actually being talked about um, as part of this change to T plus one. And I'll I'll try to cram this in um, in a minute and do it justice. But but really, sort of in in today's world with that. T plus two um, convention, there is sort of an opportunity um, in there. You have an extra day um, if a, an AP needs to come in and create on a shortened settlement cycle. They actually have that ability. They can do it T plus one, um, right? And that can help them facilitate some of that secondary market trading, right? So if they have obligations in the secondary market, they need to create shares in order to meet them. You know, they have that extra day, that extra window. Um, and really in the future, sort of post-May, um, they're going to need the ability to do that on a T zero basis um, to achieve that sort of similar result, right? So to avoid fails in the secondary market, um, you know, there's there's lots of conversation in the industry, um, you know, amongst clearinghouse um, ETF servicing agents, issuers, APs, you know, really talking about how how can we make that happen. Um, so I, I think that that's a, a unique aspect of this change that applies to ETFs is is really, um, you know, we're almost taking that that next step to get even closer in near real time. Um, you know, again, sort of some of that unique features of um, ETFs with the primary market activity versus the secondary market um, and needing the ability to sort of access the primary market um, in order to maintain that you know, orderly trading, um, you know, tracking prices, tracking tightly to NAVs in the, in the secondary market. So definitely a, a unique and interesting aspect there that applies to ETFs. Well, John, I really appreciate the uh, insight this week. I am 100% sure I'm going to be covering this much more as we get uh, closer to the date. But excellent insight, and thank you for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks very much. That was John Hooson, Managing Director, U.S. ETF Product at Brown Brothers Harriman. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Is your portfolio diversified enough to navigate today's unusual markets? Join Vetify and other industry-leading experts on Tuesday, November 28th for their alternative symposium. Register for free at etftrends.com slash webcast slash alternatives dash symposium. Next week, two great guests for you. I'll be joined by Madison Investments President of uh, Funds and ETFs, Patrick Ryan. We'll talk about their recent ETF entrance. And then Cerulli's Daniil Shapiro will highlight their latest ETF research and trends. 
Until then, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.